If you have a Bible, we'll be in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, if you don't have one with you, there should be a black hardback uh, underneath that chair in front of you. Good to see all of you guys. Uh, welcome to service. Um, as we get started, a couple announcements. You can find them uh, on the back of your worship guide. Uh, for the month of April and May, for both of these months, we will be raising some money for Camp Blessing Texas. Some of you are familiar with Camp Blessing. Uh, it's an overnight camp for kids with special needs um, that I've worked with for the past few years. Uh, and so every year we'll raise some money, send it their way, and that's for a scholarship or more than one scholarship for children with special needs. This is an overnight camp with, uh, that serves Down syndrome, uh, kids, autistic, uh, autistic kids, and then kids with cerebral palsy, and then much more disorders. So those are the kind of three main disabilities that they serve. If you're interested in learning more about them, I can uh, give you some more details about them. Um, but if you'd like to donate to that uh, during offering anytime these next two months, you can uh, put a check in the plate as it passes by. Put the memo line, Camp Blessing, uh, and we'll get that your way uh, and send a scholarship uh, camper up to Camp Blessing. Second announcement before we get started here this morning uh, is we will be starting an outreach uh, project with East Fort Bend Human Needs pretty soon. Um, so we need two things for this. We're going to build a vegetable garden uh, for their uh, little food pantry and we'll uh, raise some food for them and, and they'll be able to give it out. We need money and we need manpower, okay? And so I'm poor and weak, so we're going to need to work hard <laughs> on um, getting some help from you guys. Uh, so we'll have a fundraiser uh, spaghetti dinner on May 6th. Uh, if you've We've done this before, and so after second service, after the service on May 6th, uh, we'll go upstairs, have a big spaghetti dinner. Donations are uh, welcome for that, and that'll raise some money um, for our project. And then the next week on Saturday, May 12th, uh, we will take some people up there uh, and get to work and have a good time together. Um, so if you're interested in that, there are sign-up sheets for both of those things out in the hallway on the table uh, out back um, for the spaghetti dinner and for the... Um, for the workday at East Fort Bend. Okay, Revelation chapter 20, uh, we'll get after it this morning. Um, we are still in our series uh, called Victory. So this is our third week. We started on Easter morning. And kind of the idea of this series is trying to understand what it means um, to say that Jesus has risen in victory. Um, what's he in victory over? What's he defeated? And how does that affect our lives? Um, so we will be uh, in Revelation today. We'll be in Revelation next week as well. Um, Michelle will be preaching for us next week. I don't know if you've ever heard Michelle preach. Um, but she is much better than I am, uh, so you're allowed to think that. You're just not allowed to say that, okay, to me. So you hold those thoughts back, um, but she will bless us next week out of Revelation as well as we continue on in this series. So on Easter, um, we looked at the resurrection, and we, and we looked at this idea that when Jesus was on the cross, and then when he raised again, um, it was this victory over the powers that enslaved us. It was this victory over sin and death and evil, and Satan. It was this, this cosmic victory where we were freed, where the forces that had entered into creation that held us in bondage um, were conquered. And then last week, if you were with us, we, we looked at the tension that you and I live in because we, we claim that Jesus has won victory on the cross, but yet if we look around us in the world, there are still, it seems like, these forces on the loose. People still get sick all the time. There's death everywhere. There's abuse everywhere. There's injustice everywhere. Um, we still struggle with sin and temptation all around us. And so last week we looked at um, what we called um, this overlap period, the between two worlds. And we, we saw kind of the spiritual warfare aspect of our life. Um, and out of Ephesians 6, we saw Paul instruct us for how to handle this kind of time period between us. And if you'll remember, the kind of analogy that we use to try to understand this is D-Day and V-E Day. Okay, uh, So we, we saw that um, if we, we look in World War II type terms, we can think of Jesus' death and resurrection as D-Day, as the day when um, the Allied forces... Uh, 
came into Normandy and, and landed on the beach. And it was the decisive turning point in the battle. Um, and so the war wasn't necessarily over, although you might say it was over. Both sides knew that, that this would be the big turning point. Um, and after this, it was just a matter of time for the victory to be implemented. And then, sure enough, a few months later, uh, as the army kept pushing inwards, you have V-Day, which is Victory Day, or V-E, Victory in Europe Day, when the, the Axis powers actually surrendered fully and finally. And we saw that we seem to be living between these two points. You have D-Day, which is Jesus' death and resurrection, and then V-E Day, which is what we'll see this morning. And so that's the, the final victory. That's what he started on the cross being completed in all of creation. So we'll see that here in Revelation 20. We'll pick it up in verse 11 here. Um, Revelation was written to uh, seven churches by the Apostle John um, in the late first century. And he's writing to churches that are facing persecution and oppression under an emperor named Domitian um, in the late um, Roman first century. And so Domitian is persecuting the Christians. They're being robbed. They're having their houses taken away from them. Some of them are being tortured. Some of them are being killed. And John writes to them um, to encourage them and to, to help them endure and be faithful during this time. Now, often what we do with Revelation um, and we do it with the whole Bible, but, but we tend to do it with Revelation more, is we use it as like a, a theological crossword puzzle um, or, or like a, a code book, right? And so we um, will search through this thing and find like these political prophecies um, and all these, these little codes written throughout it, okay? Um, and so, I mean, you can just look at the literature and go to the Christian bookstore and whatnot. There's tons of stuff written about Revelation and, and predictions that have been made. If you don't know this, um, pretty much every generation since Jesus' time has predicted that their generation would be the last until Jesus came back. They've all been wrong so far. Um, and so, I mean, I heard that growing up. My generation is probably going to be the last one. Eventually, they'll be right. They'll be like, yes, we nailed it. And but just the thousands, the thousands before them, right, will have been wrong in the prediction. Um, so you run this risk when you, you look at the book of Revelation. You, you run this risk when you really nail down these details and really try to make these real firm predictions you run the risk of, of, of losing the forest when you focus on the trees, right? You, you miss the big picture here uh, when you get caught down in the details. And, and if you were to just sit down and read through the book of Revelation, there's an amazing big picture happening. There's an amazing story happening. Um, Revelation tells the story of this kind of cosmic war. Um, this kind of cosmic war that's happening that you and I don't always get to see and we're not always aware of. In fact, Revelation was written to these Christians to explain to them the gap. The gap between Jesus' victory and the suffering they were experiencing. They were saying, look, if, if we worship the king, why are we being killed? Why are we having our possessions taken from us? And he writes to, to show them what's coming, to show them what's actually happening around them. And so, um, if Revelation is anything, at, at its basic, it's a, it's a good story. I mean, it's just a good story. And as Christians, we, we believe it's, it's more than just a story, but, but it's got this great plot to it. Um, and so some of my favorite scenes in the book of Revelation, we'll get to chapter 20 here in a minute, but in chapter 12, after a little bit has happened in Revelation, in chapter 12, the kind of final scene is set for the last great conflict um, in the earth. Uh, and what you have is you have a woman who appears, and she's in um, labor pains, okay? And she gives birth to a child. But, but right next to this woman is this red dragon. And the red dragon wants to devour the child. As soon as he comes out, he's just waiting there, chomping at the bits to destroy this child. Because he, he has some, some kind of idea that this child will be the end of him. If you'll think back to Genesis chapter 3, after Eve is tempted by the serpent, God tells Eve one of her children will kill the snake. That's the kind of imagery being used here. The dragon knows this is the child who's going to 
destroy him. And so he wants to devour it as soon as it comes out. The woman gives birth and God protects the child and the woman. Um, eventually the child is taken to heaven. This would be John in Revelation's way of describing Jesus' life. Okay? He's born, the dragon wants him, doesn't get him. And he goes to heaven. And, and as he's in heaven, um, there's this great war that breaks out. And, and Michael the archangel casts down the dragon from heaven to earth. He's no longer allowed in heaven. He's only on earth. Um, and for some of us who have grown up in the church, this um, seems strange to us because we commonly think of Satan or the devil as being cast down to earth at the very beginning of creation, like Genesis 3, um, that kind of period. Um, but in the scriptures, it's a little more accurate to say he was cast down around the Gospels, around that time. Jesus will say in Luke, I see Satan being cast down from heaven. The book of Hebrews will say one of the things Jesus does when he ascends into heaven is he cleanses the heavens. He casts out anything evil that has reached even the throne room of God. And so Satan falls from heaven. The dragon is, is sent down to earth. And what you have in, in Revelation here is a wounded beast who's lost the real battle in heaven and has a little bit of time on earth. And he's wounded and he's angry. And so he sets up, you've got to get this scene in your mind, the, the dragon sets up on the shore. So he's got the sea behind him and then the earth in front of him. They didn't have this picture of the globe, right? They just thought there was water and there was land. And so he's on the shore with the water behind him. And, and the sea to the ancient Israelites represented chaos and evil and, and kind of this out-of-control power that could destroy you. And he sets up on the shore with land in front of him. And he sees the woman's children all across the earth. And he wants to destroy and devour and wreak havoc with the time that he has. And so what happens is he calls forth a beast from the sea. And this huge snarling beast comes up from the sea from behind him. And he unleashes the beast from the sea onto creation, onto the land in front of him. As he stands and watches on the shore. And then there's also a beast from the earth that comes up. We commonly call the beast from the sea the Antichrist and the beast from the earth the false prophet. Um, and and the, the, the dragon just kind of stands on the shore and watches these two beasts make war in the earth. And then in chapter 14, in what's got to be one of the more dramatic scenes in the scriptures, you see a challenger appear to the dragon. Because you're, you're watching the scene and you're just going, this is hopeless. I mean, if you're the, the people reading this that John's writing to, you're going, this is what we're living in. I mean, we're, we're living in a world where we're just being torn to shreds. But a challenger appears in chapter 14 on Mount Zion, on Jerusalem, on the top of a mountain. And it's a little lamb. And if you, you know the biblical imagery, the lamb represents Jesus, the lamb who was slain for our sins. And the lamb takes its stand on Mount Zion in the middle of the land and faces the dragon. And this is the scene you have pictured for John. This is the, the between the two worlds that we're living in. You've got the dragon on the shore. You've got the lamb on the mountain. And for chapter after chapter after chapter in Revelation, there's this anticipation building. What's going to happen when the lamb meets the dragon? What's going to happen when they finally leave Mount Zion and the shore and come into this kind of collision? And it builds and it builds and it builds with all of this dramatic imagery. And then in one sentence, they meet and it's over. And it's such a letdown. Because <laughs> I don't know if you've ever like, read sci-fi or that type of thing, but, but with all that anticipation, you're expecting like this huge battle to break forth and this huge scene going back and forth and back and forth. But I think you have here a picture of how sovereign Jesus is. That even though there is this struggle with the dragon, right, it's, it's not worth more than a sentence. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's like a kid who, who wants to fight you. I mean, they can maybe put up a struggle, but, but you're just going to stop them. 
and it's over. And the lamb meets the dragon and he, he finishes it. And that's where what's just happened when we pick up in verse 11 from, from 7 um, to 10. The Satan has been defeated, okay? And then we'll see what happens on VE Day when, when the Axis powers surrender. And so verse 11 here. I saw, this is John talking, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in it, in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, one of them, each one of them, according to what they had done. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 21, or chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Okay, um, you have here again, V-E day. You have what happens when the powers are defeated. And you'll see there are two kind of aspects to salvation here. Um, almost like if you had a coin, these are the two different sides that are happening here. The first is judgment, and the second is creation. You'll, you'll see he, he judges, and then he creates. Or you might say recreates. He creates something new. He creates something over again. And so there's this great white throne in this first scene. And you have God sitting on it. And the dead are raised. Everyone who's died is raised back to life, is resurrected, so that they can stand in front of the throne. And by the throne, there are books that are opened up. And one of the books, it seems, has a record of deeds. Has a record of things that have been done. And at least one of the books is what you'd call the book of life. And, and we learned from earlier scriptures that the book of life has the names written in it of, of those who have faith in Jesus, of those who are his, of those who have been given the spirit and have followed him, who have repented, who have believed, who have been baptized, who have served him. And the daddy says, great and small, presidents and peasants, they take their turn in front of the judge. And it says they're judged according to their works. Now, judgment has a very bad rap um, in today's kind of society and culture. We don't like judgment. We say things like, don't judge me. 
Um, we don't like, even when the scriptures have judgment in them, we, we want to screen that out. We want to either not talk about it, or, I mean, if you've watched kind of the culture of Christianity, um, the past few years there have been some books and, and some speakers coming forward um, trying to downplay judgment, trying to downplay um, God getting um, rid of certain things. But, but judgment at a foundational level is necessary for salvation, um, judgment is really this. It's, it's two things. It's naming evil and getting rid of it. Saying, that's not allowed anymore in what I'm doing. And if you or I ever want to live in a world where there's joy, and there's peace, and there's safety, and there's security, we want somebody or someone with some sort of power to come and say, that is wrong and that's not allowed. There is no new creation without judgment, without God and all of his power saying yes and no. Laughter, yes. Tears, no. Growth, yes. Sickness, no. Love, yes. Hate, no. Community, yes. War, no. He sits down and he judges. And the books are opened. And so commonly this has been portrayed, at least as I've heard it, as, as think of the books, right? Maybe in our kind of culture, think of like a movie screen. And so there's a screen of your life, a movie of your life that plays and you see all the kind of deeds that you've done. Um, and, and I mean, if you were to think right now that we'd play up the screen, right, of your life, you'd probably start to get a little bit nervous. Okay. There are things probably people don't know about you um, or, or maybe right if you hear your thoughts um, during this movie. I mean, you're just kind of anxious. You don't want um, kind of be revealed in that way. And so here's the struggle we have when we come to a passage like this and others. And the struggle is this. If you, if you look in the passage, it appears that everybody is judged for their works. Even those whose names are in the book of life. Now, people have tried to get around this lots of different ways. And I, I was reading a, a scholar this week who just said, unfortunately, there's just no way to get around the biblical evidence. That even Christians will one day give an account for what they've done. So if you, you had a pen and, and you wanted to write down some of these, you'd go look at them. Um, Romans 14, 10 through 12. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. One day we'll stand before the throne of Christ and give an account for what we've done. Paul says he's aware of that as he's, as he's preaching, as he's traveling. He's aware that one day he'll have to explain himself before Christ. Um, a, a good one is in 1 Peter chapter 1. In fact, let's flip there together. Um, to your left, just a bit, right in front of Revelation, 1 Peter chapter 1. If you hit Hebrews, you've gone too far, you turn, go back right, um, 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 13. Trying to think through what, what this judgment looks like and, and what it will be like for Christians. What will it be like for those whose names are written in the book of life? He says in, in verse 13, 1 Peter 1, 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Look at verse 17 here. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He says, if the one you serve is the one who looks at every human being without respect and says yes or no, this is right and allowed and this is not allowed, 
then maybe for Peter there should be an aspect of a little bit of fear here. A little bit of, there is a way I'm supposed to be doing this. And there's maybe a conversation I'll have eventually about it. Verse 18, notice though, for for Peter here, that doesn't stand at odds with grace or salvation. So he says, um, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing what? That you were ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What's the blood of Christ for? It's for our sins. It's for the ways that we've fallen short. He was foreknown, Christ, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So if we were to head back to Revelation chapter 20, you have this judgment scene where all stand before the throne. And for believers, here's what I believe happens. Their book of life is open, and they give an account. And again, there are different ways of interpreting this and trying to, to understand it. Some think you're just giving an account for what you've done since you've been saved. Um, so this led to some early Christians not wanting to really get baptized until right after they died, uh, or right before they died, right? Because then you have a little bit less time to make some to pile up that list. Um, but they were like, yeah, that's kind of silly. I don't think that's right. And then you have others who say, this is really just rewards. You're getting judged for rewards or not. And so some will go into the new creation with a big bag of treasure. Some will go in with nothing, okay? Um, and, and then... The way, the, the way I understand this and the way I, I reconcile this is, is the book of, of your life is opened up, but for those with faith in Christ, they're not paralyzed by it. Because you've you got to think, who's sitting on this throne here? Who wrote the names in the book of life? Was that you? I mean, did you sneak into heaven and I'm, whatever kind of ink they use, I don't know, mm-hmm. write your name in there on the book of life? No, it's the one who's sitting on the throne who wrote your name in. It's the one who died for you, who, who judges you. And so, so I do believe there's going to be this day where, where we give an account for what we've done. But it's not an account for what we call salvation. It's not an account that should paralyze us with fear, but instead just push us toward obedience. I mean, one of the things I, I tell young people a lot is, is you've got to be careful because it's easy to live a long time without thinking you'll ever have to talk about it. Without thinking that one day there might be a difficult conversation that you'll have to have, not with your parents, not with your friends, but with someone on the throne who seems to be so powerful that the earth and sky are getting away from him as fast as possible. And you have to stand up there in front of him and say, I chose to do that. I chose to do this. But again, for those with faith, that doesn't paralyze us because right next to that book is a book of life with the names written in it of those who believe. Not those who, who had more good deeds than bad deeds. Right? There are not two books, a book of good deeds, good bad deeds. You compare them, your good has to outweigh your bad. That's not the basis here. The basis is, is your name in the book of life or not? Now, those with their name in the book of life get to move on to new creation. Those without their name in the book of life do not get to move on. They get thrown in what's called the lake of fire, along with death and Hades, personified forces of evil here. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Again, there's this push to try to screen some of this aspect out of the scriptures. I just don't think you can do that with the amount of biblical evidence there is for this kind of thing happening. That at a certain point in time, God will say, I can't allow this or you anymore. But he judges. And at this moment, all evil is out of his creation. 
every force, everything that would cause goodness to turn bad. And the stage is set for what we call new creation, for God to renew things. And so we, we have here in chapter 21 this incredible scene. There's a, a new heaven and a new earth that are being made. Like Genesis 1, heaven and earth are made, but now it's a new heaven and a new earth. And, and um, the sea, he says, was no more. Again, don't think sea like as we think of like the beach. And you're like, oh no, there's no beaches anymore. Think of sea as this kind of chaotic, evil, primordial force that you can't control. He says, that's not there anymore. Remember, God's getting rid of anything that taints his good creation. And there's a new heaven, new earth. Notice again, this is different than how we sometimes look at salvation. We have tended over the last few years to think of salvation as immaterial as spiritual and not physical. That salvation will consist of you and I going to heaven with just our souls and leaving our bodies behind with the physical earth to just burn and die and go away. But the biblical picture here is of earth itself being remade. God doesn't say, I've got to scrap this plan. He says, this was a good plan. We're going to do it my way. And he remakes heaven and earth. In fact, heaven comes down to earth. We've talked about this trajectory here, right? Even in the Gospels, Jesus says, May your will be done on earth as in heaven. Heaven's coming toward us. It comes out of the sky to earth, and then you hear the voice say, The dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then in verse 4, you you get this scene that's hard to wrap your mind around. He says, He, the he here is who? It's, It's God. He says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I mean, that's just an interesting thing to wrap your mind around, that God himself is going to be wiping tears away. He's going to be saying, no more. It's gone. We're here. We're here. We're... And so, um, when I, I, my brother was born when I was 12, and so uh, when he was maybe two or three, um, my room was right across from his room. And so in the middle of the night, uh, or not in the middle of the night, but toward the morning, he would wake up for a else. And for a year or two, he would come into my room, get in bed with me, uh, and, and sleep right next to me until kind of everybody got up. Um, and occasionally he'd have like a bad dream, right? Uh, and so I uh, don't have kids, but, but I have had kind of this kind of parent experience just because my, my brother was born when I was old. Um, and so occasionally he'd come in crying, right, because he's had a bad dream. And he'd get in my bed um, and... Well, I just wanted to sleep, okay? Um, and he's, he's in there crying. Um, and so um, the choice is, you know, how do I get him to stop crying? And so what you do is, is right, you're like a two or three-year-old, and if you have kids, you know this, right? You, you just kind of hug them close, and you go, it's over. The dream's over, okay? Whatever was happening, it's, it's done, and it's gone. And there are tears, you wipe them away, and you say, you're with me now, right? I've got you. I'm here. I'm not going away. It's over. And this is the picture you have here. God himself wiping the tears by going, we're here. It's over. Look around. New heaven. New earth. And then he, he lists off the things that aren't here anymore. Notice again, this is God talking. Almost like he's, he's talking to the person he's wiping the tears away from. Trying to explain to them what they're going to experience. He says, there's not any more death here. He says, stop crying. There's no more death here. That's not going to be part of this new heaven, this new earth. He says, there won't be any mourning have you ever heard a cry of, of someone who just found out that someone they love is dead? There's a very distinct sound to that. God says, that's not gonna, you won't hear that here. That, the sound doesn't exist here. There's no more mourning. He says, there's no more crying. Now, this is interesting because the first time I read this, 
I thought almost like God was making fun of you here, right? Because he's wiping your tears away, which means he's, you're crying. And he's like, there's no crying in heaven, okay? Uh, so, I don't if you ever seen the movie uh, A League of Their Own with the, I think, Rosie O'Donnell, the softball players who get their own, like, professional baseball league, and the, like, drunk coach, like, there's no crying in baseball. That's not what God's doing here, okay? Um, he's just explaining, right, in the future, there, there's going to be no more crying. There won't be any pain anymore. Because I know you've never experienced a world without pain, but, but there's not going to be pain anymore. Why? Because the former things have passed away. Then he was sitting on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Now some have pointed out, I think correctly, that the, the word order here seems to be precise. Notice he says, I'm making all things new and not, I'm making all new things. I mean, think about what the difference there might be. You might have almost like a, a microcosm here of the good news of Jesus. That he doesn't scrap what's gone wrong. He doesn't come to a person and say, you're so tainted with sin and guilt, I'm just going to get rid of you and do something different. He does what? He says, let me heal you. Let me, let me bring you back to me. He doesn't come to earth with all of its sin and all of its chaos, and he doesn't say, let's just get rid of the whole thing. It didn't work. Let's, let me make something new completely. No, he says, I'm going to make that new. He doesn't make new things. He, make, he makes all things new. He, he recreates heaven and earth. What we should see, I think, we should see the new heavens, new earth, and our resurrection as the end, as the completion of what started on Easter morning. Christ is commonly called in the scriptures the first fruits. And you've got to ask yourself there, the first fruits of what? What's he the first of? God making new things. God resurrecting. God bringing new creation. In a sense, in 1 Corinthians 15, um, Christ is called the first fruits. You have this idea here, there, that God's calling out numbers, right? And with Jesus, he goes, one, and then maybe some time passes, and then he starts going two, and three, and four, and his people rise, and then he creates again the new heavens and the new earth. He's making all things new. He says, write these things down. He says, it's done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. And then he says, to the thirsty, I'll give from the spring of water of life without payment. Those who want it, those who would desire it. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Okay, as we kind of head towards a close here this morning, you've got to remember... John's not giving them this picture of the new heavens, new earth, for them to make endless predictions about what might happen in the future. You don't have time to do that when you're in a war. You definitely don't have time to do it in 95 AD when you're being robbed and killed and tortured. John gives them this vision, this image, this revelation of what is to come so that they would know that no matter what happens, no matter what it looks like around them, no matter what comes in on them, he'll win. I mean, if you wanted to sum up the whole book of Revelation in two words, that would be it. Jesus wins. And so in big dramatic language throughout the whole book of Revelation, he wants to say, don't get distracted. If, if earthquakes happen, if mountains fall, if stars are coming from the skies, don't lose sight of the fact that he has won and will win. And the call, the vision, the revelation comes out to people who are caught in between. Who are caught in the crossfire. And who are called to stand with the lamb as he faces down the dragon. 
and who are called to go meet the forces of evil with a song of triumph. You, you have here a quote uh, on your worship guide by a guy named Gustave Alien. He wrote, uh, this is at the end of a book called Christus Victor, Christ the Victor, the Victorious One, um, where he talks about how Christ, through the cross and resurrection, has defeated the powers that enslaved creation. He says, I'm persuaded that no form of Christian teaching has any future before it except such as can keep steadily in view both the reality of evil that's in the world and yet go to meet the evil with a battle song of triumph. He says, we've got to have this outlook as we go forward, that there's real evil in the world. And if we're being honest, one of the mistakes we've made throughout time, really a lot in the past few years, 10 years or so, is sometimes we make the mistake of thinking evil is divided between us and them. So the Western world is good, the Eastern world is evil. People like me are good, people like them are evil. There's a quote that says that the line between good and evil is not between me and you. It's, it's running down the middle of all of us. There's real evil in the world. There's real war happening. But at the same time, we meet it head on. We don't meet it head on wondering if victory is possible. We meet it head on with a song of triumph because our king's risen. And because one day it's coming and we know it for sure. A new heaven, a new earth, a resurrected body, a glorious existence with God wiping our tears away. And so this letter, if you, you look in history, seems to be successful because the early Christians, one of the things they do is they die debts um, that just astonishes the people around them. And so when Nero and, and then later Domitian, they're killing Christians, um, the Christians are famous for, for being ripped apart by beasts singing hymns to Jesus. I mean, we don't do that. I mean, my ear starts hurting, and I'm just not happy with God, okay? I'm, uh, the early Christians are getting pulled apart, and, and they're singing hymns. Why? Because, because they know he's won. Because they know they shouldn't serve power or money or violence. Because those things don't have ultimate authority. But there's one who has come, who's risen, and who has conquered. And so it would lead an early church father, Tertullian, to say... Um, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As, as they kill us, really what it's doing is just testifying to, to the fact that we're on the side of the team that's won. That our God's conquered death. We're not, we're not afraid of death anymore. Why? Because it's been beaten. Our Lord holds the keys to it. And so we, as we, we live between D-Day and VE day um, having a picture of the future is, is just as important for us, for faithfulness now. What we think of, of happening then will influence us now. And so the, the call this morning is to, um, to, to see the end game, to see the results, and then to be further pressed towards a life of faithfulness and obedience. The only thing dangerous for someone reading the book of Revelation, the only thing that should scare you is not standing on the side of the Christ, of the Lamb. No matter what would come your way, for those who are, who are with the lamb, the lion, there's victory. There's joy. So John says, look, look into the future. Don't let what's happening now distract you. One day, everything that's gone wrong with creation will be dealt with, will be accounted for. And I'll remake it. And my people, those who have washed their sins away, who have written in the book of life, who have been following me, my people... 
I'll say, come on, let's go. We'll get rid of the tears and we'll enjoy true, real life for eternity. In the meantime, there's a dragon. And so we're faithful and we're obedient and we look toward the future. This revelation would end, but he's coming soon. He's coming soon. Let's pray.